There we go. I do got it recording. We'll see how good this goes tonight. We're in Isaiah chapter 12. We're talking about words from a worshiper. It is a good way to tell us. I know we started on this uh, last week. And we got into it a little bit. I can't remember exactly how far we did, but I want to share with you a little bit what it is. Is as we had chapter twelve, it talks about the Messiah reign. Chap- I mean, chapter eleven talking about the Messiah reign. Chapter twelve is the idea of someone who has seen it and they're worshiping God because of what chapter eleven told them about all the conflict and the things that's going on. And it's a psalm in the middle of the book here. Uh, and let me let me read it to you. It's, it's six quick little verses. It says, In that day shall the old in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou was angry with me. Thine anger turned away from me, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song, and he has also become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall we draw from the wells of salvation. In that day you shall praise the Lord and call upon his name and declare his doings among the people. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout thou in the inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. And I, I do believe we got about halfway through this last week as I got to looking at the verses just now. Because I remember we talked about, especially verse 2, about God... Uh, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, not be afraid. Jehovah is my strength and my song and my salvation. We, I remember we talked about that some last week, uh, where basically as the, 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 the psalmist is saying, or the, the singer is saying, in verse 2 he talks about he sees that God was angry. And, and, he, and it, it's, he, he said that God basically, and if we look at this, God is angry with sin. And we all know that Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. So that we, we see that's one of the things he, he, he did. Guzik said this, and I, I know I read this last week. Under the new covenant, does God get angry with us in a sense in which all wrath and anger of God is against us was pounded out upon the Son of God on the cross? In a sense, there is no more anger from God towards us because his anger has been exalted exhausted excuse me and if you think about that when christ was on the cross all the wrath all the anger of god was poured out on him why because of our sin if you remember god turned his back on his son because he couldn't look upon the sin of of the world that that christ carried to the cross for us so in a sense in a sense the anger has been extinguished so it's no more then he goes on to say this he says but there is also a sense in which we receive chastening or discipline from the Lord, which certainly feels like his anger. This chastening is unpleasant and because it really shows the fatherly love instead of his hatred. Then you think about that, then that's really what God's doing. When you think God's mad at you, oh, I've done something, he's mad. It's like as a parent, you got mad at your children. Then it's not like, oh, I'm, I'm going to kill my children, even though sometimes you might have felt like that. But it was, you got on to them because you loved them. You, you know, how many times, you know, as your children were growing up, did you say, uh, I, I, I have to get on to them because if I don't, they're not going to learn. And, and that's why we do it. You know, I, I remember as a child, though, when my mama had a belt, 
And I swear this belt had to be 60 foot long. And I would get, I call them helicopter whoopings because I would try to run from her, but that little old short woman had a grip and a half. She'd hang on to one hand on me and she would be popping me with that belt. And I'd be running around in circles. And I'm thinking, and mama told me one time, she says, this hurts me more than it does you. And I'm thinking to myself, no, it don't. This is painful. But I learned a lesson. I didn't do that again. Because I often tried to find that belt, but she hid it very well. And, and I, you know, so I didn't like that thing. When it came out, I knew I was in severe trouble, but I had done something wrong. If I didn't want it to come out again, then... I didn't do that, which I was caught. Of course, I was too stupid to realize, and I tried other things. But God looks at us a lot of times like that, and he chastises us. He allows bad things to happen to us. You're like, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forgotten me? Why am I going through this? Sometimes because God's trying to teach us a lesson. And so it's, it's not that he, he hates us. He's wanting to discipline us. And so that's one way to look at what the, the, the psalmist was saying. So when he says that, then he goes and he says, Behold, God is my salvation. And I know I talked about this too, that, that to say that God is his salvation is also to declare that he is not his own salvation. That works is not his salvation. That only God can be. So, you know, uh, the, the, he wants us to see that that. What he's saying is true because he starts off, he says, behold. And, and so that, that is a way to get people's attention. And, and so he, he's letting them know that God's his salvation. He so, and, and, and I got wrote down in my notes here. I said, you ever think that many people don't feel the need for salvation? We live in a world today that a lot of people don't understand what salvation is. You know, I know what salvation is because God, when, when, when God got hold of me, he let me see the fact of who I was, that I was a sinner and that there was no way to get to heaven except through him. That I, I could try to be a good person, that I could try to do all kinds of things, but there was no way. So salvation comes because I can't work my way to heaven. But people have a mindset today that, and, and I've talked to a lot of them, they, and how many of you ever heard this? I don't see how God would send me to hell. And in and, and I hear that a lot. So they don't understand what's the need of salvation. And it's, they don't get it that God does not send you to hell. You choose to go. And it's as plain as that. It's a choice you make. If you reject God, then you're choosing to go to hell. So if you reject his gift of salvation, then what are you really taking? The opposite. So God, and I thought I said so many things, you know, uh, that they don't think they'll never go to hell. They're not that bad a sinner. They'll say, well, look at so-and-so. He's a lot worse than me. Well, the bad thing about it is if so-and-so ain't saved, you'll be standing right next to him in, the, in hell. Because, you know, hell's going to be full of good people. And they don't quite get it. And so, but it, I also know, I remember this. I talk about if you know that, you notice this, that he, he says this twice in this verse. He says, God's my salvation. He ends this verse with saying that God is his, has, has become his salvation. So he, he's really trying to make the point. And, and the Hebrew language 
And in the ancient language, to repeat yourself meant that you were definitely trying to get a point across. Julie tries to tell me that's the same way when she does that to me. And I just always considered it nagging. But, you know, but, but, I, I, but I realize she actually probably is trying to get a point. You know, I've tried to tell her that if I've done something, you don't have to tell me and continue to tell me six months later that I need to do it. I understand. I just haven't done it yet. So, but, all right, let's get into, into verse three. He says, therefore, I will draw from, and I know we talked about this too, drawing from the wells of, of, of the salvation. And he says, therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. And so if we look at that, you know, well, it amounts to we come to Jesus for the water of salvation. Jesus talked about that he was the only way to salvation. He told, remember the lady at the well, that he was going to give her water, that, that she would never thirst again. And, and I know, and I, I, I got the idea when you read that story, the first thing she's thinking about probably is, well, good, I'll never have to carry this stupid bucket down here again to get water because he's going to give me some kind of magical water. But in the midst of the conversation, she comes to realize that it's not physical water, but it was the water that cleansed you from the inside. It was that great water of salvation. She comes to realize that. And I think it comes as God revealed to her who she was. You ever think about that story as Jesus starts talking to her and, and she, she tries to change the subject numerous times, but Jesus doesn't really allow her. And before it's over, he, he tells her, I know who you are. I know how many times you've been married. I know you're living in sin right now. And so you think about that. When, how many of you remember when you came under conviction for salvation and God said, you see who you were? And, and how many of you tried to, to uh, how many of you, it took a while before, you know, that convicting power got hold of you? You know, uh, how many of you went home from church a couple of times and, and I'm never going back there again? My favorite thing I always get told is this, is when people say, how'd you know? I've been asked that before. How did you know? I didn't. I just, you know, God gave me this sermon. I'm sorry it fit your circumstances. Your circumstances, you know, God don't say, Steve, that one on out, pew number three back there, you need to say this because I know what they're doing. He doesn't do it that way to me. Okay, so, you know, so uh, you, you get on that convicting power. And he says, but I love what he says here. He says, therefore, with joy shall you draw the waters out of the well of salvation. So, it's, it, you, you know, one of the greatest things about being a child of God is salvation. Is the fact that we, and how many times have you had to go back to that? Go back to the salvation. Satan tries to tell you, you ain't saved. If you was, you wouldn't be doing this. And I, I can go back to the day that I was saved. I can remember the time that happened. Yeah, I was young. And I learned a lot since then. And, and you know, uh, it, it, sometimes I wondered, well, I, I, I remember one time thinking, well, did I just totally miss it? And I didn't understand it because I didn't understand this back then. But then I realized, too, that God wants you to grow. And he reminds me, and he's reminded me time and time again about the prayer I prayed. You know, I didn't know nothing about God. At the time that I got saved, the idea of what a New Testament and Old Testament, we were given New Testaments at school. I told you about from the Gideons. I thought it was a new form of the Bible. Ooh, I was excited. I, I, they just come out with this. It's new. I didn't realize it was part 
I didn't know who Moses was. I didn't know any of the stories. But what got me in my salvation, God always reminds me of this, was that somebody loved me when I thought I was unlovable. I was 10 years old. Can you imagine that? That as a 10-year-old, you think you're unlovable? But God said, I love you. And that changed my life that night. I said a prayer. I still don't to this day remember any of what I prayed. But I do remember again, I said, man, this is awesome. I looked at there, I was looking around and said, why don't everybody do this? Because I was excited. And, and what was bad where we lived, there was no church to go to. I went to a little church that was beside the apartments we lived in. They didn't meet in the sanctuary. They met in the Sunday school room because they only had a few people. And they never mentioned Jesus the whole time I was there. I'm like, I came to learn about this guy. Somebody tell me. It was years before I actually got into a Bible-believing church where I started to learn. And, and so, but I, God continuously reminded me from the well of that salvation, you are mine. Yeah, you weren't, I didn't gift you with knowledge overnight. But I do know that after that, when I opened up that Bible and I would start to read it, as a 10-year-old, there were things I started to understand that when I read it before, first I'm going, who talks like this? But then it started making sense. You know, the Holy Spirit can work with anybody. He worked with me, that's proof. From those wells of salvation. And I look back now with joy. Now notice something too, the singer says. He doesn't say from the well of salvation. He says from the wells. That shows the abundance of God. Not that there's many ways to salvation. There's only way, one way, it's the water that's in the well. But he says from the well, because God's wanting you to know he has so much. It's not just one little well that you have to go to. He says, no, I can be wherever you are, wherever you need the water, it's there for you. That salvation's there for you. You just gotta draw it out. Because notice one other thing, he says, with joy shall ye draw the water. So he, he said this, it requires an action of us. To be a, a joyful Christian requires us to have an action. You, you know, I came and been in an ill mood, sat in the pew and just said, I dare you to bless me. I dare you to sing something I like. I dare you to do something that's... And yes, guess what? I left in the same condition I came in with because I didn't want it. But I've come in hungry. I've come in needing. And God met my needs because I came searching. I came seeking. I came ready to draw from the well. You want to have a joyful Christian life? Be willing to do something. Be willing to be drawing from it. Be willing to say, Lord, here I am. I'm seeking you. So that's kind of what he's talking about. Now let's get to let's get to, to verse four. And now we're getting into something I hadn't covered yet. So, so I gave you a good background taste. And so now the, the worshiper from, from four on down, he's going to declare the greatness of God to everyone. So he's talked about what God's done for him. And then it says, In that day shall ye praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people make mention that his name is exalted. So he's, he's there, you know, he's exalting the God among the people, praising the Lord. He said, call upon his name, 
You know, this is an ex- exhortation for us to praise and to encourage and, and encu- an encouragement to worship is the best way to put it and to trust him. You know, the worshiper here receives salvation from the well and, and now that living water is flowing out of him to encourage other people. That's the great thing about salvation is when you get it, it's something that just bubbles out of you. I, I think I've told you this before about a, a friend of mine, he was a, he's a pastor, and he told me, he said, when I got saved, I was excited about it. He said, then that morning, he said, I was trying to tell everybody, he said, but I got up that morning, the next morning, and had to go to work. He said, and I got to thinking about the people I work with. And he said, so I was kind of almost ashamed to say anything. He said, but I couldn't hide it. I just kept thinking about it. He says, and I go to work and I'm smiling. And, 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 and he said, I guess that wasn't normal for me. He said, because this lady came up, she says, what happened? <laughs> and he's like, oh, I got to church, got saved. What? <laughs> and he said, you know, I couldn't hide it. And he says, like the Holy Spirit got hold of me then. And I had to tell people. And he says, of course, there were those people that kind of like, I'll never talk to you again. And and he said, you know, first I thought that would be bad. He said, but God brought other people who were a lot better than those who didn't like me to start with, I realized. And he said, so you can't hide it. And so it shows from you. When you get saved, it kind of bubbles out of you. And people notice the difference in you. So here the, the, the worshiper saying that, that, you know, you should, he said, in that day shall you praise the Lord, call upon his name. But I like that next part, declare his doings among the people. So, it, but I like how he wrote that. It's not just, you know, there's times in the Bible that says to tell what God's done among the heathen. That's when we're sharing it with the lost, but he says the people. So he's also saying we ought to share what God does with, for us with each other. That's a, that's a blessing. How many of you love to hear the, the great testimonies when you hear what God's done? You know, you think about the people we've had at church where we pray for. I'm going to give you like Margaret, for example. I love that story. I love when she calls me and says, "Hey, I'm on my way to Birmingham to get me a, uh, to get get my kidney transplant." And, and we're like, "All right." And so, and then so I'm talking with Mike on the phone, and he's outlining what the doctors have said. He said, "You know, she's going to be in surgery. Then she'll be in ICU for a week." Or, or, or more and then she'll be in step down for about a month then we're going to have to live over here because she's got to come to the doctor every day and then you know she has the surgery the next day uh, that Sunday as that Sunday morning she had it we go over to see her go into ICU I go in there and pray with her she wakes up that, that was awesome and, and you know her vital signs start just going up uh, I go in when butter gets in there, they're even higher than that. And it was awesome. Then the next day I call Mike to see how she's doing. She answers the phone. And then you find out she's been up walking around the hospital and they send her home before the week's out. And that Sunday she's in church. If that don't show you what God's on the throne, won't nothing. Amen. That's something you can share with everybody. Say, hey, I seen somebody have a kid, a liver transplant, not a kidney transplant. 
But a liver transplant, which, you know, they, they flayed her open real bit, and she's at church Sunday. Now think of what he's done in your life that you say, hey, I don't have nothing as big and great as that, but the wonderful things God's done. You know, I, I look at it, hey, I got to be a daddy. And then on top of that, I get to be a granddaddy. So that's two wonderful blessings that when I was growing up, I didn't think would ever happen. One, God gave me somebody who actually liked me and she agreed to marry me. And, and so that was wonderful, you know. I look in the mirror now and I say, yeah, boy, you lost out, didn't you, darling? You know? So, but God has blessed me in such wonderful ways. And then I come to church on Sunday, I got a family. You know, I don't just have a church. I don't just pastor a church, I pastor my family. That's one great thing I love about it. So I got wonderful blessings that I can declare because he says, you know, basically his doings is his deeds. The same word is for deeds. You know, and so you see that the worshiper can't quit talking about the greatness of God. Now, when we get to the last two verses, he's singing his praises unto the Lord. Isn't it amazing how many times in the, in the Bible it says to sing? Now, you know, and you think about when do you sing? It's usually when you're happy. So he starts off, he says, Sing unto the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitants of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. So he, he says, sing unto the Lord. And, and so the, the, this, this song is of the worshiper, and he's singing it to God. He said, thank you for what you've done. You know, and, and so, and then he, this is, he, 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 that first verse, he's talking about that. Then when he gets into verse 6, it's excited prayer praise for God because not only is he saying sing but then he starts saying you know he, he said all these wonderful things but he says not just sing it he says but shout it out cry and shout out so that means do it at the top of your lungs could you imagine on Sunday morning if we started singing amazing grace and you know we all that, that's a very reverent song and we, we just sing it from our heart but could you imagine if somebody just got excited that was standing beside you and just let it go at the top of their voice and they sounded like me i mean that would be horrible <laughs> but you know this the excitement of it i i i, I remember uh, this guy we used to go to church with bless his heart he could not sing and and uh, but he sang all the time. He sang a special all the time. People would cringe when he sang. And I'll, I'll never forget how God got on to me about that one Sunday. As I'm watching him up there singing, bless his heart, he had a weird stance when he sung too. But then I noticed the joy on his face. And he told me after service, we, we got to talking, and, and he told me, he said, I just love to sing. I finally, the next time he sung, he sung a, sung a song by Porter Wagner and actually did a wonderful job. Sounded just like the man. I said, you need to sing that song all the time. He says, I don't like it. <laughs> but he had such a joy he didn't care. He told me after that, he says, I know, Steve, I can't sing. He says, I can tell by the looks on people's faces. He says, but do you know, I enjoy it because what God did for me. He says, I wished I could sing. He said, but I tried teaching and that was even worse than my singing. <laughs> but it was the joy he had. 
so the, 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 song, the singer here, the worshiper here is saying, cry out and shout. Tell what God did. Don't worry what everybody else thinks because before it's over with, somebody's going to get a blessing out of it. And I think about that now. I look back at him and I realize what a blessing I got when we started talking about how bad he sang. And that, that was it. He, we, we got to talking and he told me, he says, I know that you can't stand to hear me. He says, that's why I stand in front of you. <laughs> Because he would. If I was sitting over here, he would move over here. If I was sitting over here, he moved over here. And and he told me, he says, I know you can't. He said, but I I know you love me. And after that, I didn't care what he said. And and I miss him. And I I believe now he's gone on on home. And I miss him. And, And just because of the joy he had. There was another man in another church. I'll never forget the first time I ever met him. And I'm like, he, he was different. But he got up and sang. And he used to sing in honky tonks. And he got up to sing one day. And the voice that came out of him was so angelic. I love to hear him sing. And, and, and he would not sing the music. But wow, what a voice. And he's gone home. And I think... You know, when he sang, the look on his face was just wonderful. He enjoyed it. He said, I used to sing in honky-tonks. And he says, says, I'll never do that again. He says, I sing now just to praise my God. What a a wonderful testimony. And so he he says here, he, he gives two reasons. He says, listen to what he says. He says, cry out. For great is the Holy One. He says, be, sing out because of God's greatness. You ain't got nothing else. Think about what God does. He's still in control. Then he goes on for the next one. Because he says, for great is the Holy One in the midst of thee. So it's a promise. As, as, as listen to this. Let me flip over to John right quick and, and read some scripture to you. We'll flip over to John chapter 14. Verse 17, if I can get my Bible pages to unstick. 14 verse 17. It says this, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth, with you and shall be in you. Why do you tell about God's greatness? Because he's inside of us. He's always there. When he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, he meant it. There's times that we turn our back on him, but he never turns his back on us. What an awesome God we have. And is this in the middle here of this these, these prophecies, he tells this. Now, what's made you, you've got this wonderful, joyful song, and then he goes into chapter 13. And it, 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 the, Isaiah 13 begins a section that's going to go all the way until Isaiah 23, verse 18, where Isaiah is prophesying against nations. 
So we had this wonderful glimpse of the, the, the Messiah's reign in chapter 11, the song about it in chapter 12. Now we're going to get on to everybody again. He, he, have you noticed how Isaiah does this? He, he, he gives woe and then he gives joy. He gives woe and he gives joy. And I, I guess that's because if we read about happiness all the time, we just kind of start taking it for granted. But if you read about woe all the time, you would be depressed all the time. So he, he begins this and he, he starts off here in 13 and verse 1. He's, I always think it's funny. He cries, talking about crying out for salvation. Woo, joy. Then he says, the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, did see. So the word burden here is masa. And that actually means load-bearing is kind of what it means. It comes from a verb, which means to lift up and carry, but it's a heavy burden. So by implication, this is carrying a heavy burden. And so as Isaiah's writing this, uh, he, he, he starts writing it and he starts telling about, you know, it's a heavy burden. And he tells us who it is. It's against Babylon. Now, this is what's funny. He, this shows you how good God is in control. Because Isaiah finished his prophecy and prophesying and, and writing and everything in 685 B.C. Okay? That's almost a hundred years before Judah falls, before the, the Babylonian Empire, which happened in 586 B.C. So at the time of this prophecy, Babylon's a very significant nation. And it's one of the strongest nations. And so... You know, they, they, were, they were definitely, you know, behind the Syrian Empire and statue at this time, but they were up and coming. Yet, you know, God knows the end of everything. He knows what's going on. And so he's going to speak judgment on the pride of the Babylonians a hundred years before the judgment comes. Isn't that awesome? How God can show this to us? We can look back, we can read these words and say, he prophesied this before it even happens. Now, how easy it is to talk about things when it's happening. And you say, you know, I, I, I've, been, I've listened to a lot of, uh, of preachers and stuff on the radio. And some of them I've had to turn off recently as they start talking about how this virus is the right hand vengeance of God. And, and so they'll start quoting scriptures, start doing all this. And I'm like, you know, I'm sorry. I've yet to go through here and read where God's going to strike down a nation with a, uh, with a flu. Well, I know there it talks about pestilence, talks about a lot of things, and I know this is got set up for the end time. But how 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 specific God is right here. And like I said, the, the he's gonna talk about this until the end of chapter fourteen. Uh, Clark says from this passage, he says the former part of this prophecy is one of the most beautiful examples of that can be given of the elegance composition and variety of imagery and sublimity and sentiment and dictation in the prophetic style that the later part consists of an ode of supreme and signaler excellence. And I'm like, wow, that was really nice. Too bad I don't understand a word of what you said, Mr. Clark. Basically, he said it's really well written, to put it in, in, in common terms. 
Uh, so why is God speaking to Babylon here? Like I said, they're not a significant nation yet. Assyria was the bad guys really in Isaiah, in Isaiah's time. But he's jumping up to another one. And so, you know, you, you can say this prophecy was probably never published in Babylon. I'm sure they didn't rush out and send it up there. Uh, so, you know, it's not really giving as a warning to them. It's the it's to help the people of God to see that God doesn't forsake you, even though you look and say, well, we have this bad time coming. God says, I will take care of that in my time. You know, you think about this. We look at the world today and we see this horrible stuff that's going on. We're like, God, why do you allow this? Why are you allowing these fruitcakes to do the things that they're doing? Why, why are, are, are there lawsuits against bakeries just because somebody's standing up for their religious beliefs? Why does this happen? Well, God's promised us that all this will be taken care of. And here he says, I'm giving you an example. I prophesied against Babylon and a hundred years later it happens. So it, it's to let us know, it's to give us assurance. It was to give his people assurance. Because one of the most quoted from books in the Old Testament was Isaiah. So it was one of the most well-known books, like in Jesus' time. Isn't it also a short enough time that, that the older generation can say, I was there when that prophecy happened. Yeah. Yeah, and they could, they could, in Jesus' time, they could read it and remember this happened because it was part of their history. You know, they hadn't got to the point like we have gotten to where we're trying to rewrite history to fit modern times. Yeah. Yeah, they look at you and go, Reagan? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, we can remember it. We can remember the different things that's happened, and try to tell people. So it's the same principle here. Yeah. So, so verses. Now we're gonna go to chat, verses two through eight. There's an army gonna come up against Babylon. Now this is what really seems strange. Okay, here you're talking about a nation that we know that at this time was a significant nation, but they were like number two. They weren't the, the top dogs. And, and so he speaks talking about an army that's going to come up against them. Listen, it says, Lift ye up a banner upon the high mountain, exalt the voice unto them, shake the hand that they may go to the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have called my mighty ones from my anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. The noise of the multitude in the mountains like as of a great people, tumultuous noise in the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of the hosts musters the hosts of battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, even the Lord, and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. <coughs> it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all the hands be faint, 
every man's heart shall melt, and they shall be afraid. Pains and sorrows shall take hold of them, and they shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth, and they shall be amazed one another, and their faces shall be as flames. So he starts off, and it, it, Isaiah uses some very picturesque, flowery wording in a lot of his things. He's giving word pictures. And so some of this stuff you read like, okay, this, some of it's, this is deep. But let's break it down. The, the banner would be a military sign or standard. So he said, lift up your military standard you know, upon a high mountain. So the, the vision here opens up. The first thing the prophet hears is the solemn command of God to address the nations as subject to him, to rear the standard of war, to gather around the mighty armies that he's fixing to deploy to them. And so he says, lift up the banner. He, he's addressing the leaders of the army. Okay, this is who he's addressing, the, the ones who are going to be his sword. And he says, upon a high mountain. Now what this was, it was customary in battle at that time for military leaders to put themselves up high so that the soldiers could see them. And you, you think, uh, we can go all the way through the Civil War and you can see the, the battles where you'd have like, you know, Lee sitting up here and the troops look up. Well, there he is up there on the mountain. He's not down here with us. There's that guy over there. And, and so that was that, that act so that the, they could issue commands and they could oversee the battle. So he said, put the standard up here so that everybody can see it. And, and you know, it, it's, uh, the, he, he's not, notice, he's not referring to a particular mountain either. That's one thing that Isaiah didn't give us. He didn't give us the exact place. He said, just look on the mountain, but it simply means to raise it up, you know, so that the host would see it. And uh, the Chaldees render it the, the, as they did it, that the hosts be assembled to march to Babylon. The, over the city dwelling, lift up the security. Then, he, you know, the, the banner so it could be seen. And he says, exalt the voice unto them. So basically, uh, he's commanding the people to assemble and to prepare to march against Babylon, the army that he's chosen. I want you to march against them. And, and the word voice here refers to the, the sound of a trumpet. It's not somebody's voice. The, the Hebrew word he used here is more of a, a, a musical instrument that was used for mustering the army. So he says, exalt the voice, exalt the trumpets, the, the noise that's going to get their attention to do it. Uh, the words also used basically denotes any noise. So think about that. Here's the word voice is a noise. So you can use that for any way you want to there. All right. And he says unto them. And now who, who defeated Babylon? If you had to, does anybody know their history well enough to know who defeated Babylon? We have to go to the book of Daniel for it. The Medes and the Persians defeated them. So this is who he's talking to. He's talking to the, the Medes and the Persians who God used to destroy Babylon. And, and so, you know, he says, shake the hand. Not only does he, he goes in there, he says, you know, he says, shake the hand. This is a way of beckoning as when one is at a great distance that the voice could not be heard. So it's not like they're going up and saying, here, shake my hand. It's more like this. Getting their attention. God's getting their attention to do this, that they may go into the gates of the nobles. Now the word here, nobles, uh, basically means voluntary, free, and liberal. 
So it's basically the, the anybody. So then those who are noble or liberal-minded, uh, I guess you could put Democrat there if you wanted to. Uh, the connection between the nobles and lib- the liberal people, then those are because it was the be the the rank that they had. So you're going to their their stronghold, is what he's trying to tell them. And some render that same word that here where it says, extend the hand into the gates of the noble. It's also the same word they use for tyrants. In Babylon, the, the army was kind of tyrants. Now, he goes to verse 3, and uh, he says, I have commanded uh, my sanctified ones. You know, when I first ever first read that, when you think of sanctified ones, who do you think of? Yeah, the saved because, you know. Now, but you have to remember, what does sanctified mean? Set apart. So what God's saying, this is the people that I have set apart. You, you think about this. Now, at the time Isaiah's writing this, the northern kingdom's fixing to fall. God raised up the Assyrians and allowed them to come to power for one thing, that they might take care of the people who had rejected him and went into idolatry. So God said, I have set aside some people to destroy the Babylonians who were going to destroy the the southern kingdom. So I've set people aside. So it's not like he's saying, I have commanded a group of Christians, or I've commanded a group of my Hebrew people to do this. No, he's saying I've just the ones I've set aside for the job. And, and so the command's not given to anybody other than the Medes and the Persians here. And so we have to remember that because he calls them the mighty ones, and that's those who are strong and who are entirely under his direction, though. You ever think about that? What God uses. Now, and people say, well, well why would God use that? Well, remember Judas. Jesus knew who he was from the beginning, he said. And yet he allowed him to be there. So God allows things that he uses. In the book of Revelation, if you remember from the abyss comes those little demons that scream upon you and go around sting people. You know, the ones that got the face of a woman, they got the body of a, uh, a horse and the tail of a scorpion, and they go sting not the Christians, but those who have the mark of the beast. So you think, well, these guys were in league with the beast to start with, but God is using them for a purpose. And he has a reason to do that. It's to get people's attention. So we, we see that. So he says, uh, I've done these things. I've also called the mighty ones. You know, so he's called the strong ones from my anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. So there was, you know, basically the, the, we, we read that wrong. They're not saying, "Woo, there's God. Though if you think about it, Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, he, he builds a statue, if y'all remember, and he proclaims himself to be God, what does God do to him? Basically turns him to an animal. He gets down on all fours, goes out and eats grass. They said his nails started turning. 
and you know he looked like him. Could you imagine that? Hey, we're here to see the king. He's busy. Uh, where's he at? He's out in the yard. Yeah, having lunch in the gardens. Yeah, we can't let you see him. He's crazy as could be. We just don't want to tell anybody. And then it says that he came to realize, and then God changed to man, and he praised God, but he never accepted God. That's like throughout the book of Daniel, you see these kings, Darius, for example. Oh, Daniel, get thrown in the lion's den. I'm sorry, we did this. Daniel, that God that you serve, did he deliver you? Woo! Everybody praised Daniel's God but me. So we, we see that. So it, it isn't that they they have they're 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 just praising and rejoicing. They they do. Nebuchadnezzar did, but he never accepted. And Babylon fell. So in, in verse four it says, you know, he, he's talking about uh, he musters this army for battle. And he says, the noise of the multitude in the mountains. Like the great people, the tumult noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts musters the hosts for battle. So this army of judgment against the Babylonian Empire, it, they're very large. And they were. They were the Persians and the Medes. So he, he's telling them how big they are. It says, and they come. Here, here's how we know this was not the the Jews or anybody around because he says they come from a far country even the end of heaven now what does he mean by end of heaven this is another kind of word picture he, he's giving us here and, and basically what it means is when you're looking out at the sunset and as the sun goes down he's referring to the, the celestial heavens the end of, of where the sun you know the people used to think the world was flat and that the sun came up over here and it went over here and went down. And when it went down here, everything disappeared. So he said that was the end of heaven, you know. But, you, you know, you, you realize that they, they didn't quite get it. You know, even even Christopher Columbus didn't quite get it because, you know, the, the, the fear of the sailors were we're going to go so far off the end of the earth. But that's what he's referring to, as far as the eye can see. It's further than you can see. You know, uh, you ever watch these old westerns where these guys are out in the desert and they see a mountain and they said, there's got to be water by that mountain. Well, they walk and they walk and they walk and it's like the mountain's moving this way. Because, you know, distance is not easy. So he, that's what he's talking about. He says, they, they come from afar. So God's getting these armies together and they're, they're, he sees the assembled army. But notice he, he also says that it's the Lord's army. It's not the king that's going to be there. He knows that God's in control of it. So Isaiah has a kind of a glimpse that a lot of people don't quite get. That's like you, you think about we've seen some horrible things in America. Do we realize God's still in control? It doesn't matter what we think, he's still in control. So this, this, this thing is the army's coming and God's letting Isaiah see that they're there. And, and notice what he says, they're there for a purpose and it's to destroy the whole land. 
So he's not saying I'm going to go defeat the Babylonians and just kind of set them to the side. He says, no, I'm going to destroy them. And, you know, it, it, it's amazing. Let's see if I can find the, the, the thing that I pulled off here. Uh, well, we'll get that just a little further down. But when God destroyed Babylon, Babylon is destroyed. It never was rebuilt. Now, it took a while for it to be completely destroyed, but God completely destroyed it. Some other people inhabited it for a while, but before it's over, it's not a city that's in existence today. God had Jerusalem basically destroyed because of the fact they were worshiping idols. They destroyed the temple. But Jerusalem still stands today. So does Jericho, one city that God knocked completely down. So it's not like it was rebuilt. Babylon is still a waste today. We're going to stop here with verse 5 and we'll pick up next week, starting in verse 6, if all goes well. So y'all be much in prayer. I'm going to mark this so I don't lose my place. And hopefully we'll find it next week. Now we'll have to go, where are we? Yeah. All right.